Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. That's 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time, but since we're global, you'll have to check the time where you are. And you can catch all of our back shows, including this one later today, in our archives at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is in Nancy.com. And on Visionaries, we talk with visionaries, people in the arts, technology, sciences, culture, about how we can enrich the world and ourselves by tapping into the energy of the cosmos through creativity. Our special guest today is Virginia Postrel. Virginia is an author, columnist, and speaker who looks at a broad range of topics from social science to fashion. And her books include The Power of Glamour, The Substance of Style, and The Future and Its Enemies. So, Virginia, I once heard you refer to creating your brand. So, who is Virginia Postrel and... What ties together these disparate books? That's a really good question. I don't know um, that I've been, although I've written about branding, I don't know that I've really applied it that well in my own life. But uh, because I tend to just pursue what interests me, and so if you're not inside my head, it may not make much sense. But what I think, Insofar as, what is my brand? Part of it is that I look at the intersection of culture and commerce and technology. Uh, Part of it is that I try to think differently. uh, It's not as simple as contrarianism, although sometimes people have called me a contrarian, but I try to say things that other people aren't saying or uh, make observations that uh, people may, maybe have missed uh, to, to see things in the culture emerging. Um, and so I, I try, there are many things that many fine writers write that I agree with, uh, but that I wouldn't repeat just because I've already said. Right. <laughs> I, I, so I try to bring something different to the table. So let's apply this to your most recent book, The Power of Glamour. And uh, what a beautiful cover and a beautiful book. And um, so in The Power of Glamour, you want to distinguish between uh, glamour and glitz and beauty and charisma. What are the differences? What is glamour and what does it do to us or for us? Right. So what I do in the book is first try to get at the incredibly difficult question, actually, of what exactly is glamour? It's this word we throw around, and, and people use it to mean all different things, from women taking their tops off to the red carpet. to uh, yeah. So I really start more with the idea of what does it mean to find something or someone glamorous? And my epiphany was that glamour is a form of communication 
the way humor is a form of communication. And we identify this its presence in the same way that we identify the presence of humor by the audience's reaction. So that when, when something is humorous, the audience feels amusement, laughter, that, that sort of thing. When something is glamorous, the audience feels a pang of projection and longing. Mm. If only life could be like that. If only I could have that job. If only I could wear that dress. If only I could be that person. If only I could be on vacation on that beautiful beach, whatever it might be. Or if, um, if only I could be in that 1930s or 40s movie with the 30-foot ceilings in everybody's exactly, apartment. <laughs> exactly. So that glamour takes many different forms. It varies by personality. It varies by cultural context. Um, but that it always has this effect, this effect of projection and longing. And then what I do in the book is look at elements of glamour that are found in all, all versions of glamour, and we can talk about that. But to go back to your question about how it, it's distinguished from these different things, well, once you think of it as a form of communication as opposed to a particular style, then you see, well, it's not glitz. Some people find glitzy things glamorous, but other people find them repugnant. So (laughs) that's not glamour. Um, When you get into differentiating it from things or or similarly beauty, beauty is something that we may find glamorous because we long to be beautiful or we long to be in a beautiful place. But glamour is something is appealing to deeper deeper emotions and there are forms of glamour that are not equivalent to beauty so i you know um, the first thing that comes to my mind are those incredible headshots of from hollywood of the 30s and 40s stars right. and who today would uh in the terms you're thinking about uh who today would be glamorous well, again, it depends on uh, the audience, who, who people find glamorous. But um, I would say, you know, I, I, when I was re- working on the book, so the book came out in late 2013, but it was a multi-year project. And in fact, I was writing about glamour before I even had a book contract. So I used to say, in 2008, I was saying, wow, Barack Obama is God's gift to my glamour project, because there may not be glamorous stars, but wow, people are projecting onto him everything they want in a candidate, everything they want in a country, a president. And and, uh, I think, uh, we can talk about charisma, I think that actually made it a little tough for him when he actually got elected, because glamour always has an element of illusion to it, and... Um, but if, if you think about stars, um, it, it depends on, again, it depends on the audience. Um, some of the, I, I think um, Beyonce is glamorous to many people. Beyonce and Jay-Z as a couple are glamorous to many people. Uh, Angelina Jolie is glamorous to many people. Um, the... the it, it um, Kate Blanchett is glamorous. I talk about how she creates mystery in interesting ways. And but again, it really depends on the audience and what they're 
looking for. Um, we and and the other thing that happens today is that we create glamorous versions of ourselves all mm. the time on social media. Um, whether you're talking about photography with uh, with something like Instagram. Here is my perfect life with my perfect filters, no less, or um, something like Facebook with here on my vacation. I was actually looking at a friend's vacation photos today and thinking, wow, she seems to have much more fun on vacation than I have. And then I realized it's that glamour thing. There's, there's a Seinfeld about that in which Jerry Seinfeld talks about the the kids playing volleyball on the, you know, or the young people playing volleyball on the beach and drinking, you know, Coca-Cola. And he says, I look at the count drinking the same soda, but I'm not getting that effect. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So um, we there are many different forms of, of glamour, even even when we think about it in imagery. But you're right, those, those particularly by George Harrell and Clarence Bull, photos from the 30s where there were they were creating these icons these photographs of the actors and actresses as sort of symbols of perfection if only i could be like that and they had this kind of distance and mystery to them as well and what's interesting is when we go to that period we remember those stars more by those portraits than by their individual roles in the movie. Mm. Uh, and, and the same thing was true at the time, because the movies were far more ephemeral than, than they are today. You know, a movie would come... Isn't that amazing? The, they, they made those things to last like a month and then destroyed right, a lot of them. Right, right. Or even if they were still in the vault, um, and that's why we can see them today, and, you know, it came to your town... It played for a week or two, and then it went away, and and you didn't see it again. But you have these stills, and what's interesting also is often glamorous movie stills that appear to be from the movie. I don't know if this is still true, but it's definitely true with some classic ones. Are not actually scenes in the movie. Mm. They're not actually taken. So the famous still of Marilyn Monroe uh, in Seven Year Itch standing over the subway grate, that does that scene appears in the movie, but the photograph everyone has seen is not the, what happens in the movie. It's actually her dress goes up more. Mm. Similarly, there's a famous Breakfast at Tiffany's still where uh, Audrey Hepburn is looking into the camera. She has her cigarette, and she looks like she's at a at a table of some sort, maybe having breakfast. And that scene is not in the movie. That's something that was constructed as a publicity still um, to capture the feeling of the movie, um, but not an actual still from the movie. So listen, there's so much I want to talk to you about. So, uh, But anything else you want to say about Glamour before we go on? Uh, I have lots to say about Glamour, but let's move on. Okay, so I, you know... Let me just say one thing. Yes. Glamour is far more pervasive and important than we tend to give it credit for. And that's sort of, I guess you would say, the central message of the book. It affects 
what careers we choose, where we live, our politics, our views of technology. It's not, there's much more to glamour than fashion and film, as, as, as integral as it may be to those fields. Well, uh, actually, that segues right into uh, your book, The Substance of Style, uh, and you refer to aesthetics penetrating every aspect of our lives. I love the opening of that book where you describe a uh, facility at General Electric where they have thousands of samples of plastic that you can feel and, and feel the texture and see the color and the consistency for use in various products. So again, this um, permeates our lives in ways that we're maybe not aware. I, you know, one of the things that's probably made us more aware of this is the way Apple uh, fusses over an iPhone, every aspect of it, how it's going to feel in our hands and all that's made us aware of how designers think that way. Right. A- absolutely. So the substance of style came out in 2003, which meant that I was researching it in, I started in sort of 1999 and 2000, 2001. And then of course you do the submission and there's a big lag and all of that. Um, so if you go back to that period, the idea that your phone or your computer might be something that was not merely functional, but also um, beautiful or expressive of your personality in some way, was a very new idea. And what inspired me to write that book was the sense that the look and feel of things was becoming increasingly important in areas where it hadn't been terribly important in the past or in the recent past. And so uh, sort of the touchstone example in that book was actually Starbucks, um, because Starbucks had gone very quickly from sort of a cutting-edge idea, not only the idea of premium coffee and, and making that part of your life, not just having sort of instant coffee to get your caffeine dose, but having an experience and having different varieties. But the idea of having a mass market ubiquitous chain in the way that, say, McDonald's was a mass market ubiquitous chain, that put a premium, put paid a lot of attention to the decor of the environment, creating a place that people wanted to be in, and also creating a visual identity that could allow variation among the stores, but you always knew you were in Starbucks. And that had been a very new idea that had very, very quickly become a new sort of minimum standard. So if you were opening a new restaurant, whether it was a one-off or whether it was a chain, suddenly it had to be at least as good as Starbucks. Starbucks had gone from something that was new and different to the basic minimum standard. And that took place in a really quick time. And so now you fast forward to uh, 2017, this is just everywhere. I mean, we just take it for granted. 
we take it for granted that if you are staying in a hotel, a a Hampton Inn or a Holiday Inn Express, a cheap hotel, but it will have certain basic amenities in the way the the room looks. It it will have, rather than having a a bedspread that's the color of dirt so that they don't have to clean it very often, it will have a pristine white bedspread. It will have uh, granite countertops in in the bathroom, that sort of thing. That's a ratcheting up of our aesthetic expectations has taken place over a relatively short time. And uh, and then in boutique hotels where very often, because it's built into an older building, the rooms are way too small, they make up to it by having a star designer make the room interesting. Right, exactly. And, and, um, and there's always, in, in the hotel business, which is another thing I talk about in, in, in the book, there's always a tension between trying to create a standardized experience so that people know what they're getting, a you know, strong brand, and trying to create a unique experience so that people enjoy a new, new experience. Um, and, and one of the ways that boutique hotels have a niche is they say, you know, we're not, we're not a cookie cutter. We're, we make it interesting looking. We, we give you an experience that's maybe related to the place you're visiting, or, uh, or, or to the designer we use, and and most of so the substance of style started with this idea that things were changing with a sort of trend, a business trend, cultural, one of these commerce and culture in, uh, intersections. It was it was a cultural trend, uh, increasing importance of design and aesthetics. Uh, but very much playing out in the marketplace, playing out in business. And what, not ex- what is your not take? Explicitly. Right. What is your take on the? I think the ultimate commercial example of that would be the Apple stores. Yeah. Well, I remember reading something um, that was I can't remember who wrote it, um, but somebody was talking about how their kid who was quite young, like six, could tell that the store was an Apple store. This is when they were relatively new because it kind of looked like an Apple, like to them, it looked oh. like an Apple computer. And and it's very, very subtle, but that very strong aesthetic identity um, was, was part of that experience. And, of course, the Apple stores, when they came out, they were partly – they were a solution to a huge problem that Apple had, which was that at that time, it's very hard to remember this, but at that time, Apple had about 2% of the personal computer market. This is long before the the iPhone or even um, the iPod. And, and it was becoming difficult, I know, because I had a, a Mac at the time. It was actually becoming difficult to get service. Um, let alone something like the Genius Bar that they created where you could actually get advice. But And so they created these retail stores, which at the time a lot of people thought were, were, were a crazy idea, um, partly to just have a presence and partly to serve their, uh, their small but devoted following. And then, of course, it became a huge 
retailing success story um and and creating the ipod and uh you know, go figuring out how to solve the big problem with with music and um and creating a way that the the record labels could get paid but people could still have their music in a convenient uh song by song uh way um and then, of course, the iPhone. Once you had those stores, they became this amazing money machine. Right. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're by far, if you're a mall owner, you want one of those Apple stores. Right. They the have most, the highest square foot sales per square foot. Right, of any store, yeah. So listen, yeah. Let's, let's go on and get to my... A book of yours that was very influential on me, The Future and Its Enemies. And, oh, my God, I was just, you know, digging up the uh, reference to it from online, and it's almost 20 years ago. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so tell us what you were doing in The Future and Its Enemies and have your ideas about these issues changed in the past 20 years. Yeah, so... Like the Substance of Style, which started out as a trend book, and then most of the Substance of Style is about, well, why is aesthetics valuable to people? It's not just manipulation. You know, what real value do people get out of this? So, so again, the future and its enemies sort of started with noticing a trend. In this case, it was a sort of political trend, which was that rather than simple left-right breaking down the way we had thought about it in the past, um, we were seeing coalitions, political and cultural, intellectual coalitions, um, that were around what I call stasis versus dynamism. Um, People uh, who wanted, who's, on the stasis side, there were people whose chief political values were stability or control and who uh, were very suspicious of undirected change, bottom-up change. And and that was taking place around, I mean, as you say, it's almost 20 years old, 1998. There were arguments about the Internet there were arguments about trade and immigration, which have come back <laughs> big time now, uh, that were crossing left-right categories. And so right. I start um, uh, one of the uh, early examples is I talk about Crossfire, uh, which was the show on CNN where people would debate on the last time. Pat Buchanan on the right, I'm Michael. I mean, on the left, I'm Michael Kinsley. On the right, I'm Pat Buchanan, and I have a guest, and we yell at each other for half an hour. Um, and there was this episode of of Crossfire where Pat Buchanan, who was a classic right wing person, and um, Jeremy Rifkin, who's a man of the left, were in agreement against. Uh, I forget whether it was Kinsley or some uh, somebody else, but the the the, um, the conservative guest and the liberal host, um, and this was very much around future work and uh, just m- many of the themes we see reemerging today. Um, 
And I thought that was interesting and that that was important that we were seeing these these political alliances. And I was more on what I call the dynamist side, which is uh, we we need to allow for decentralized experimentation and feedback. This is where progress really comes from because of our we we don't know enough to plan it in advance, and we certainly don't want to just hold everything in place the way it's been, or much less go back to the past. Um, and and I originally, when I was thinking about it, I was originally sort of defining myself in opposition to the people I didn't like, but then. Just as in the substance of style, I had to think about, seriously, well, what is the value of aesthetics? In this, most of the book is actually devoted to thinking about the dynamist vision. What, you know, what do I think? What do I think is right? How do I think progress really happens? And so the chapters are on think, topics like knowledge and the limits of knowledge and how knowledge is shared and emerges, good kinds of what types of rules you need and, and, and whether it's most of the book because it's framed in this political way, it's about for society in general, but you could think about them within organizations, um, even issues about nature and artifice, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I I think it's so important. I think it's the fundamental issue of our day. Um, so if you look a little more broadly, and I teach um, cultural history uh, mm. as a part of teaching architectural history, right. and you have um, thousands of years. I mean, if you look at, oh, pick 14, 1500, London, Paris, Rome, they were dumps compared to ancient Rome or even Thebes in ancient Egypt thousands of years earlier. But then, starting 250 years ago, there was an explosion of wealth and knowledge. And um, I take, you know, there's some people very optimistic, like David Deutsch in the beginning of Infinity. Right, right, Peter. which I haven't read, but my husband kept reading me parts of it. It sounds like a fantastic book and it's a really on, good, and it's on audio. Really good <laughs> oh, okay, good. And really good compliment to the future and his enemies, apparently. Right, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Peter Diamantis in Abundance and Ray Kurzweil in Singularity is Near, they're all... T- extremely optimistic. But then if you look at Peter, people, people like Peter Thiel or Edmund Phelps, they're worried. And yeah. um, uh, this, I think this 250-year thing, which I think totally comes from your dynamists. Uh, yeah. In other words, every single advancement was not planned and not predicted. And even recently, the home computer, the internet, Google, Facebook, you go to any one of those, two years before it happened, nobody in the field would have predicted it. And um, if we close down the ability of those things to happen, uh, we've got a couple thousand years of history of what life will be like. It'll be fine for the rich in their palaces and getting their pyramids built. But, you know, <laughs> most people were slaves for until 250 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, this is, of course, the big question that uh, economic historians are constantly grappling with, which is what happened? Why, you know, why, uh, what, 
Deirdre McCluskey, who's one of these economic historians, calls the great enrichment. So what's your take on what happened 250 years ago? (laughs) Well, uh, I I think a bunch of different things happened. Now, Deirdre makes her take is that um, the crucial thing was actually a change in attitude. Um, that that enabled a lot of other changes. But the idea that it was a worthy human endeavor to try to innovate and to make money also, to, to engage in commerce, that it wasn't just that we should, you know, being the landed hereditary aristocrat was not the highest form of humanity. <laughs> Why we um, can have that, a Leonardo da Vinci, right? Right. That we that you could have different, you could have this other type of activity, uh, and that that then that change in attitude then led to institutional changes, and then it, 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 it rippled through. Now, I don't know; it's a controversial thesis, but um, I think she, she has this book called, okay, all her books are called, she has this three-volume series, Bourgeois This, The Bourgeois That, and The Bourgeois That, I can't remember. I think the one is Bourgeois Dignity, um, but it's oh, the yeah, middle yeah. book. She kind of demolishes all the other theses. Now, this also took place at the time, there's another economic historian, they're actually friends, uh, Joel Mokir, who I quote in The Future and His Enemies as well, um, who ties it very much to scientific development. But I think that these things are not necessarily contradictory, which is to say, it's you always had science. You had science. I mean, the real mystery is why not China? It's amazing. When you go back, oh, I'm researching textile history now, but, but when you go back and you look at the history of technology, you know, the Chinese were hugely ahead of the game. But what happened? Why did they stagnate? Um, or why did they not take something like clockwork and turn it into wristwatches? <laughs> you know, why was it just sort of an interesting idea for the palace? Um, and it does get to this sort of some kind of dynamic story about both the idea that it's a good thing for people to try new things and to share ideas and that and to try to make money with those those ideas and to institutional arrangements whether they're legal or social that allow that to filter out so that for example Joel McKeer has an earlier book um I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, called The Gifts of Athena. And the idea of that was that there was lots of innovation. In the Middle Ages, people were inventing things. I mean, it's not like human beings are stupid until 250 years ago, and they never invented things. The, the problem was that things, one invention didn't lead to a whole bunch of new inventions. And so he argued that what happened, what, and also people were doing science, but it didn't create new inventions. So what he argues in The Gifts of Athena is that in this critical period, you had transmission of information 
between the inventors, who are often not the social elite, not the highly educated people, mere mechanics, as they used to call it, and people who were doing science, um, who may or may not have been socially elite, but often had more education. And there was this transmission of knowledge between the two that enriched both. And so that people who were doing invention, by virtue of having some scientific theory, were able to know where to look for new invention, new new improvements. And people who were doing science, by virtue of seeing these practical applications, were then possibly able to come up with uh, either new theories or or ways of systemizing what the the sort of mechanics had come up with, so that you need that kind of permeability. Um, and I think that's very important also. Interesting. The, um, um, it's, uh, and there are two parts to this. One is what happened 250 years ago. And I think it's uh, a big part of it is, and it happens, you know, in slow degrees, but the freeing of the individual, um, and the ability to do, you know, to have a different career path than your parents. Because uh, if you look at, um, I mean, if, I, if I'm shown Egyptian paintings from the pyramids and Egyptian paintings from the time of Ramses, those are more than a thousand years apart. I can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what kind of society do you need to make sure that people keep an artistic style and don't deviate for a thousand years. <laughs> right, right, exactly, because the natural thing, or at least it seems to us naturalists, to sort of explore the space, see what you can do in the existing style, and then at some point it gets played out and you try something different. Um, and and I think and that's, I think that applies not just in art, but in all kinds of things, right. in business, in, in technology, uh, but it's certainly true of art, um, and I, I, it, it is true that you. It seems odd, and 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 we see in in, uh, and and one of the things that people who are anxious about uh, our society is a more dynamic society is this idea that well, we don't preserve the wonderful art of the past or the wonderful uh, music, and it's always changing. And and I think I, I, I'm sympathetic to that in a sense, but it's not like we actually lose that. Oh, right. It's, we have yeah. our culture is so dedicated to museums. I mean, uh, to, in fact, preserving, if you look at, uh, when Herodotus got to Egypt and asked the Egyptians what the pyramids were, the response was, we have no idea they were always there, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. But right. today, um, the, I mean, maybe we could do better, but the degree <laughs> to which we have classical music, we have museums, and then right, try, to, right. and try to get into a museum. There's lines around the block right, in terms right. of this stuff being appreciated. I just went to see Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water a few days ago uh, outside of Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and they got 200,000 people a year coming wow. to see this wow. thing. Wow. And you you march through theirs, you know, <laughs> group thirty nine, <laughs> meet at the steps. 
Yeah, yeah. I remember um, back in the 90s when I was editing Reason Magazine, one of our editors, Chuck Freund, wrote this piece called My Date with the Mona Lisa. And it was about why, when he was a little boy in Washington, D.C., how the Mona Lisa had come to, uh, I think this was during the Kennedy administration, uh, had come to Washington with the big deal. And and so he, you know, he, he he went and, and he had like you know ten seconds to look at the Mona It wasn't really the experience of art. Right, right. <laughs> it was kind of like oh, I was in the same room with the Mona Um But uh, you know, most most museum experiences are considerably better than that. Um, but it's the, an indication of how the hunger there is for this stuff. Yeah. I love the room at the Museum of Modern Art where. There's both Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon and um, uh, Salvador Dali's Melting Watches, you know, which are maybe <laughs> the two most iconic modern examples of modern art. And just see where the crowds, how they drift back and forth between these. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's interesting. Um, yeah. And so, there are certain there are certain pieces of art that do not disappoint. I mean, the David, Michelangelo's David, does not disappoint. Yeah. <laughs> the well, Mona Lisa does. And and <laughs> at our at our age at least we have the opportunity to see them a while back when there were less crowds. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I went to Florence the first time in two thousand six. So oh okay. But it's still you know, the room is big enough. It's not too bad. Um but you just have to be patient. You have to wait. You have to be willing. But it is true. It's, it's so funny. If you go to the Sistine Chapel, there's a guard who just keeps saying, no photographs, no photographs. Everybody is taking photographs. Right. <laughs> but uh, but actually, this, this for relating it back to, this reminds me of, you say we're lucky that there are no crowds uh, because we're older, but actually... One of the advantages of seeing this kind of Renaissance art today is that it's been cleaned. And oh, it was yeah. hugely it was hugely controversial. I remember when they were proposing to clean, you know, very carefully the Sistine Chapel and everybody was like, Oh no, you two, can't have those. Two years of the New York Review of Books with back and forth articles. Yeah, yeah. And now you look at it and you think well, of course, this is what it was supposed to look like. Yeah, it was psychedelic. Guy, <laughs> right. And this guy, right. Well, and, and those beautiful, I associate these beautiful colors with the Renaissance because that was when I saw, when I was first seeing all this art in person, it had been cleaned and whether, and, and not just the Sistine Chapel, but the, the Duomo in, in Florence, I actually saw it in the process of being clean, where you can see, like, part of it clean, part of it dirty. Um, and and it is interesting. This goes to something that I talk about in the Seventh of Style, which is what do we mean by authenticity mm. in art? Do we, do we mean that it should look like it looked when the artist created it? Do we mean that it should show the wear of the centuries? What, what do we mean? And there are these contradictions, and I actually argue for other concepts of authenticity but um because i've also seen um there was a restoration of of donatella's david's uh, cleaning and everything and and in the process because it's bronze they did a 
an exact replica. They were able to measure everything by lasers and create an exact replica that also included the places where it was originally gilded. He had gilded hair, and and it looks really weird to our eyes, in the same way that if we saw Greek or Roman statues, that had been painted, they would right. look very strange to us because we're we're used to a certain certain style. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that comes to mind is until maybe thirty years ago, you restored antique automobiles to the way it rolled out of the factory and beautiful paint. You know, had to be original, right, but beautiful right. paint. Now, more much more valuable is the one that has not been touched and not been restored at all. That's interesting because I always thought cars were the exception to that rule, which does definitely apply to things like furniture. You know, want it to look like all beat up. Uh, but, uh, because I, it's interesting with cars. I didn't realize that that had changed with cars because I think of cars as these artifacts that are not only supposed to be beautiful, but also to work. Right. And so that, therefore, the the fact that they are industrial design as opposed to artworks has led them to be restored to their original versions. But that's interesting that you say that right. it's kind of gone out of So I want to try one more thing on you. Yeah. Um, the I for I, I subscribe to a science magazine comes out of England called New Scientist. Mm-hmm. And it's weekly, and it's readable because it's thin, and <clears throat> very interesting stuff. But uh, I maybe I detect it because I'm an American. There's a very political or, say, cultural slant to it. And it's just as a matter of course in this magazine that society should decide what scientific advances should be permitted. And I love your uh, distinction among stasis. You say there are two types, those who are against any progress and those who say, yes, uh, we will accept the future as long as we can control it. Right. As long as it looks exactly like my 10-point plan. And so that strikes me as very European. uh, And we Americans are unaware of how much the Europeans are, in fact, thinking that way now. Yeah, they do think that way, but I wouldn't say it's that that uh, Americans are. We have less of that streak, but it very much dates back to. And, and it's, I, I call it technocratic, you know, and that's because I'm talking about not just the general authoritarianism that's existed since time immemorial, but this notion of planning the future, which came very much out of the early 20th century idea. Well, corporations plan. We need to plan everything else. Um, We need to be the society as a big steel mill or something. But of course, if, if, if corporations are actually going to be part of a system that makes progress, there has to be competitive pressure on them. Um, they they have to be face, they have to be facing the possibility that somebody with a different way of doing things could pop up and compete with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the in the early twentieth century, that was not the model. The, that that was not the 
sort of intellectual model. The intellectual model was kind of that, like, we know everything that's important, and it's simply a matter of doing things in the most efficient way. And that then moves from the sort of Taylorist workplace to the idea ideals of government. And it didn't take it didn't it didn't go as far in the United States as it did in Europe. And it took different forms in Europe. There were socialist forms and there were fascist forms or different but they all had this kind of notion of we're gonna have the smart people plan the future right. and, and, and make it efficient and that, the, and that this will make society better for everyone. I mean, it, it, I, I, obviously, when you allow that kind of power, it attracts bad actors. But I don't think it was originally intended to be bad. Right, <laughs> I right. think it was it was just a failure to realize how much important knowledge, um, whether it's not not just knowledge of facts, although that's part of it, but also knowledge of preferences and desires and these intangible things, is dispersed in society. It's right. not something you can concentrate in one place. So some, some of our right-wing writers are pointing out how people like Teddy Roosevelt and John Dewey we're thinking that way. We're thinking they could com- they could plan the ideal, you know, c- society of the future. Right, right. And this was it was a way. This, if you go back in that period, it, again, it took different forms. Some of them are more repulsive to us today than others. But you know, this whole eugenics element, uh, and many of those people who were advocating various kinds of, you know, rational eugenic planning were people who were also advocating child labor laws and all kinds of things that are that are seen as progressive. And it was all part of the same idea. It was part of this idea that we could get sort of smart, well-intended people. And they could figure out from from the center what was good for everybody. Right. So, listen, we're going to have to wrap up in maybe ten minutes. So, uh, let's let's come up to you and today. And uh, I've heard you refer to yourself as a libertarian. You were the editor of Reason Magazine, which is a prominent libertarian magazine. So. Uh, what does libertarian mean, and how would you describe yourself? Well, what I would say, if you want to understand how I think the future and its enemies is better than any sort of libertarian manifesto, because I wrote it, and it's how I think. Um, but it, it's, I would say, to me talking about myself as a libertarian, or I tend to more frequently call myself a classical liberal uh, these days, means it has to do with where you place the burden of proof. You talked about how new scientists always assumes that everything should be regulated. And I start from the assumption that you have to make a really good case for regulation or, or central control of things. Now, some libertarians would say that makes me a wuss because I will admit that 
there are examples where you can make such a case. Uh, and I tend to be sure. very incrementalist like, oh, and look oh, for uh, better, you know, I, I tend to look for better um, starting from where we are. How can we make things better as opposed to starting from a utopian vision? How can we move toward that? I, I like um, to say that the government should regulate all cars should have their bumpers at the same height. <laughs> That is something that has done me much good over the years. Um, but, again, there are costs to that, even to that regulation, which seems very uh, – um, so we, we can have an argument about whether that was a good idea or not. I, I, I'm agnostic on it. Okay. <laughs> um, but but it, to me, I, my presumption is that people know better what's best for them than outsiders. And, and my presumption is that um, there are sources of social improvement that are going to bubble up if you let them, um, rather than trying to dictate them from the top. And my presumption is that in the political, when things are politicized, it becomes a more divisive than necessary, and be subject to capture by people who have a lot of time uh, for politics, as opposed to most of us who just want to live our lives. So that I am, I'm, I tend to go away from some of the absolutist prescriptions that many libertarians like because they're they're very good heuristics. However. Uh, but but it's more this mo- this this quite radical alteration of the burden of proof because many people, particularly in my profession of journalism, start from the assumption that if something is unregulated, that's dangerous. Mm. And yet, of course, they wouldn't apply it to their own profession where we have freedom of the press, and that's a good thing. <laughs> right. Some somebody once said to me, there are too many somethings out there. And I said, do you also feel there are too many books? <laughs> oh, I, I've said that, uh, you know, when people criticize consumerism and people spend so much money on so many things, I say, if you were willing to apply that to books, I will take you seriously. Right. <laughs> but if not, forget it, because the one thing I have way too many of in my life is books. So let me, <laughs> let me pull something on you at the last minute. And that is, um, well, let me just say that this is John LaBelle. We're on Visionaries on PRN.FM. And my guest is Virginia Postrel. And her website is VPOSTREL.com. You'll find out a lot more about her. We didn't get to all the board she's on and things she's members of. And maybe if we can get you on another time, we can do some more. But let me end with a with a really uh, difficult question. And that is, I love Peter Thiel's idea that in an interview, he likes to ask, what do you believe that almost no one else believes? And um, uh, so how would you respond to that one? Well, I remember reading that and saying that to my husband, re- and saying it to my husband. And he said, "Well, that's easy. Just say glamour is important." <laughs> if oh, you there ever you go. That question, um, and that's something I believe glamour is important. But um, I've been thinking a lot in the last few days um, 
about, I wrote a piece about plastic surgery the other day. And one thing I believe that is, is that the good, the true, and the beautiful are all forms of excellence that are not the same and that do not necessarily coexist and that we make ourselves crazy and and sometimes countenance really bad things because we equate them. Uh, we think if someone is a great artist, they must be a good person or if if that if we we say we can't think that personal appearance is important uh, because that's denigrating more important moral qualities. No, they're just other. They're they're, they're just different. That's <laughs> a great they point. They all have to line up in the same way. And it sounds you, obvious when you say it, but people don't really believe it. Yeah, and they were regarded differently in different cultures when uh, Ode to a Grecian Urn says, Beauty is truth, truth is beauty. That's all you know and all you need to know. They're necessarily talking about our culture, talking about the Greeks. And there was a story, I never found it repeated anywhere, but one of my professors described a woman in ancient Greece accused of a crime, and she opens up her robe to the judges to display her body. <laughs> Obviously, she's innocent. You know, that, uh, yeah, that right. a beautiful body is, is the same thing as a, a good soul. And right. the, we don't, ha, that's not our value, but maybe some other cultures did have that value. Right, right. And we tend to do the opposite, which is sort of to say, if you acknowledge a beautiful body or if you acknowledge that you value that, there must be something wrong with you. And it's like, no, it's just, it's just like being smart doesn't make you more important or valuable or, or human person, but it's a form of excellence. Being a great athlete doesn't make you a, a more moral or a better human being, but it's a form of excellence. These are valid forms of excellence, um, but we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't act as if acknowledging them requires us to give up our other values. Terrific. Well, uh, anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, this was a great conversation. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, uh, let me uh, let our listeners know that there are terrific interviews with Virginia on C-SPAN. I was listening to them on the bus on the way over here. You can just log on to C-SPAN on your phone and search on her name, and you can hear her interviewed about her various books. Our guest has been Virginia Postrel, and she's the author of The Power of Glamour, Longing, and the Art of Visual Persuasion. She's the author of The Substance of Style, and the uh, her much earlier book, I'm shocked to see it's 20 years already, The Future and Its Enemies, uh, very influential on myself. So thank you for... Um, Thank you for being with us, and tune in again next week. Thank you. Thank you.